Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Welcome back, everyone. We are in our summer series where we're just hearing stories from various amazing first responders and frontline workers. I'm so grateful to join you again with an amazing guest, and I can hardly wait for you guys to hear it. Let's dive in. Welcome, Stephen. I'm so excited to have you on this show. I've been really looking forward to this conversation for a while. I feel like I had to hunt you down to be able to get this time, but I'm really excited that we were able to make it work. Um, To get us started, I guess what I was hoping to start out with is just a bit of getting your story. So the work that you do, how you got into it, what appealed to you about going into fire service? Yeah, me me, uh, entering the fire service was kind of a childhood dream. Uh, I was a young kid, kind of a lost little kid at, you know, 12 or 13 years of age. And I happened to be sitting on a bus stop and a fire truck went by and I, the gentleman on the back smiled and waved at me. And I remember that, that vision Mm -hmm. staying in my head. And I thought of that firefighter um, as a superhero. And I thought I really want to be that one day. And I I speak in a lot of schools and I tell kids, you want to be a nurse, you want to be a doctor, you want to be something, you put that vision in your head and don't let anybody take it away and you'll become that. And I, I yeah. really believe that in all my heart because that's exactly what happened to me. So totally. it took me seven years and 13 departments to apply to and finally get accepted mm-hmm. by the Surrey Fire Department in 1990. And yeah, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Very cool. So we were just chatting before I hit record about kind of your journey since then that you started out in Surrey and have kind of bounced back and forth between there and Esquimalt. So um, what have you noticed in terms of that kind of career path for you? Well, I never aspired to be a fire chief uh, in any way, shape or form, which is funny. If you stay long enough, you will end up either being probably in the executive on the union side or you'll be in management. And I ended up um, becoming a chief. And I think one of the things that I noticed right away um, is that you're you're very hypervigilant as a firefighter or a captain, but when you become a chief, you're very hypervigilant in a completely different way. You're mm. you're now becoming an expert on reading people's body language. You're an expert on um, managing your own emotions when you get angry about dealing with people. You're there's a lot of growth. Well, there's been a lot of growth in this in becoming a chief for me personally. Um, I think I've had to work very hard um, at my listening skills. You know, mm. my journey to get here was pretty bumpy, but a pretty straight line. Um, but I had my own mental health challenges about ten years into my career, and yeah. I I'm very sensitive and I'd, I'd say empathetic to people that are really struggling Mm -hmm. and they're, you know, if I can help them and recognizing that as a, as a manager is something I think you have to learn and be taught. And once you learn it, you can grow. And I've worked with people who are negotiators and um, I've managed suicide scenes and I've, I've been involved in, you know, very, very uh, stressful crisis situations that have failed. So when Mm -hmm. you go through a failure, say like a jumper that you, you've been talking with for almost four hours and then that person decides to jump. It, it doesn't feel good, you know? And so how do, how can you be better? Like I'm not a crisis negotiator, but I managed some scenes and yeah. And so, you know, your whole kind of perspective on um, arriving in a fire truck and helping someone on their worst day to managing and trying to 
get a better outcome is, is very different. The feelings are very different than when I was a firefighter. I could go home on my, in Canada, it's four days off. Yeah. I could go home on my four days off and pretty much shut the job off. There's no shutting the job off when you're a chief. Never. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting that you had no expectation of ever being chief. I find that fascinating. And I find it fascinating in terms of the next question I have for you, which is when you entered or imagined entering the work, when you had that imagining of like, they're a hero and going into it, what were your expectations? Like, what did you think it was going to be like? And and I almost want to ask the same question about almost like that second level of your career in terms of not just how did you imagine it was going to be entering the work, but how did you imagine it was going to be to be chief that made you not really want to do it until you were in it? Yeah, you know what? I, I would say uh, for the first year of getting hired in Surrey, um, big department, you know, real calls, you know, everything from shootings to fires to overdoses to gang violence. Like you're a real, real first responder in a way that you see everything and you, you go to sometimes two over 200 calls in a day, that department. Yeah. So you're busy. Um, you're very, very focused, but I did find it quite easy to shut off, uh, until I had my own, um, I'd call it mental health crisis. I really what didn't feel like I was affected by anything. And it kind of blindsided me, to be honest, because I was one of those firefighters that loved coming to work. I, my wife would mm -hmm. say, you know, he's got two families. He's got mm -hmm. our, us and then he's got the fire, his crew at the fire hall. And, and yeah. she would always bug me which one I liked the best. And I said, I like them both. You know, it's like <laughs> they got yeah. different pros and cons. Yeah, I loved I loved my job. I only had one really, really tough year. And mm. um, aside from that tough year, I, I mean, I just man, I just smile thinking about my career. Yeah. So. Yeah. It sounds like then it really surprised you when things took a bit of a turn. So tell me a little bit about that. Like where, where did it feel like the expectations then didn't continue to live up to what I, the, I love my job piece. Where yeah, you know, I, I still love my job. Uh, even going through that part, but I, I, I had rules in my head that first responders, you know, I, I work, me and some other firefighters, we we instruct behavioral um, health. It's basically mm -hmm. it's it's mental health first aid, but it has a different spin on it for first responders. And um, we talk to first responders about rules in your head. And I tell this story. I had rules mm -hmm. in my head that kids shouldn't die. So mm -hmm. when I would see yeah. a dead child, it affected me. Yeah. And in the case where I struggled was um my daughter had rsv and ended up in children's hospital and they said she was four weeks of age that she might pass away she might not survive mm -hmm. this the swelling in her trach was very yeah. very bad and you know she was in trouble mm -hmm. so after about a week of being in isolation um, i played hockey and lacrosse and i was very very active being in isolation for you know a week was hard but my daughter was sick but after about a week we were expected to be there for weeks. So my wife said, why don't you go home, go to work so you can, you know, just get a bit of a break and come in between your shifts. And our son was staying with our neighbors. So I, I liked that idea. And, you know, we were just sitting in a room with our daughter, a little baby with tons of electrodes. It was very depressing, very hard. And so I thought that was a good plan. So I went to work and, you know, within a few minutes of being on shift on my first shift, we had a full rest for a three month old, which, you know, working on that kid, um, I can see it as I'm telling you the story now that, you know, my daughter's face was flashing in and out when I was working on that little boy. Yeah. Um, I had another call on the night shift, 11 year old girl, not wearing a seatbelt, ejected from a vehicle, did CPR on her all the way to Royal Columbian hospital from Surrey. Mm -hmm. She passed away. And then we finished that week off with mom in a very low income uh, area, did too much crack. Baby was on her lap and, um, rolled off and suffocated in the couch. And so, mm -hmm. you know, three CPRs in one week, uh, I developed something, I'd call it the flu. I developed uh, not being able to function. I mean, I couldn't think clearly, um, anxiety, uh, certainly depression. And then I just tried to plow through it. And um, I was an avid drinker and drinking was kind of my go-to thing. I didn't use any other drugs, but I just, 
really, really tried to make those feelings go away, but I couldn't with alcohol. So for me personally, uh, I started to, I call it going to a tailspin and I, I definitely did. And then my daughter came home and started to recover over the next several months, but my wife knew she had an issue with me and she didn't know what it was. And mm-hmm. I was trying to protect my relationship with my wife and my relationship with alcohol. And, you know, I just, I got in a bad, bad way. And, you know, some firefighters came to my house and my wife reached out and said, I'm worried about them. And so they came in and I spent over a year in clinical counseling, mm-hmm. um, changing the rules in my head. And the rules that I changed were, uh, I, I can, I, the rules were, uh, kids shouldn't die. And I changed those rules to kids will die because that's the profession I'm in and I will see it. I don't like it, but I can get through it. And changing little rules like that are very important for first responders. And same one, I'll give you an example. I managed a jumper call and, you know, he decided he was going to jump and he jumped. My rules in my head now are, um, I, I, that was not a good outcome but it is what we do. And that person for some reason needed to end that pain and he is no longer in pain anymore. And so yeah. those rules in my head are my survival skills. Um, yeah. You know, I have lots of uh, history with suicide. My own brother took his life and phoned me the, mm-hmm. the day he was, he took his yeah. life and told me basically I'm going to take my life. And I just said, I can't do this anymore because he had told that to me dozens of times. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much hung the phone up on him only for him mm-hmm. to take his life. Yeah. So you wear that. And when it's yeah. your family or friends, I've had friends take their lives. You very hard to change those rules. So totally. I accept that. Right. So I accept my factory settings. I accept that I'm a human being. I accept that I'm emotional and, you know, it, it took a lot of work to get to a place where I could actually do self-positive talk and tell myself, yeah. it's okay to cry on your way home from work. It's mm-hmm. okay to get emotional. Those things are okay. And yeah, I really, in the last, you know, decade, I've really got to know myself. And I think that's what first responders don't necessarily do. Like I, I had a bumpy childhood and, you know, there's things I didn't deal with and if you're going to come into a profession like policing, paramedicine, or firefighting, and you've got a lot of things from the past that you haven't dealt with, I mean, Gabor Mate speaks to it very well, is that mm. it will stir things up. You will probably go to a traumatic call, and you will be affected because there's only so much space you have up there, and you're dealing with all the stuff from the past. They call it the yeah. duffel bag, right? You totally. know, Duffel yeah. bag overflows, but it's not necessarily that traumatic call you went to. It's all of those things. That was just... Mm-hmm. Pandora's box, the opening of the duffel bag. And then once things start coming out, they keep coming. There are so many great pieces that you've just opened. I love it so much. Um, the The piece about the rules in your head in, in clinical counseling, we talk about this idea of shattered assumptions. And it's this idea that we are all walking around with base assumptions at all times, right? Like, um, I think one of the ones I use as a really easy example often is when I get in my car, my base assumption is I'm getting to my destination safely. I don't for a moment pause and question that. I hop in my car, turn it on and drive. And I don't think more than two seconds about any of, of it, right? I just go. And it's not until a bad thing happens that shatters that base assumption that interrupts that. And when we have a shattered assumption, when it's been shattered, we suddenly become aware that we had the assumption to begin with. But until then, it's very subconscious. Like we're not aware that we're walking around thinking kids shouldn't die. It's just built into us that we expect that kids shouldn't die. And it's not until we're confronted with these experiences that break that over and over again, that we become aware that, oh, I've been walking around with this assumption that suggests that this isn't okay. And yet I'm confronting it over and over and over. So it must be a thing. And then how do we reconcile that? Right. So like for people who have been in a car accident, the really tricky part is how do I get back in a car and do this again when I've had this assumption broken? And so my ability to trust my own safety feels disrupted, right? First responders do this on a scale of like times a bajillion because you guys are constantly confronting those kinds of pieces that normal people, quote unquote, normal people, everyday people get to hold many of those assumptions without ever having them confronted, right? They, they live with similar assumptions and they never have to have them broken. 
But you guys go into situations where they're broken constantly and then have to do that process of reconciling it. And if we don't have a roadmap for even knowing that I'm going to have to do that, then we do do things like drink because it is easier. It's it's a way to default and not have to figure out the process about it, right? And so it's just, it's a coping mechanism to be able to survive in the midst of it. Right. And that's, you know, I was trained by my parents that drinking was the way to manage things like anxiety and depression. And it was right. okay. You know, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily listen to what your parents tell you, but you certainly see what they do. Right. So as a small kid, you, you pick up these, these lessons in life and you use them. And then even though your self-talk might be denial and things that, you know, I'm not like them, I don't do that. But in a lot of cases, you end up being very similar to your parents. And, um, especially when it comes to coping. Right. So, um, yeah, you always got to work on yourself and, uh, and I do constantly, and I realize, you know, I'm at the top of a hill and I'm probably as resilient of it. I've as resilient as I've ever been in my life, but I don't take for granted that I'm, I could slip back there at any time and, yeah. you know, breathing and positive thinking and, and you know what, being emotional, whether it be laughter or crying, um, those are healthy actions and to suppress, suppress crying or emotions is not healthy. And so you know, for people that battle depression out there and, you know, they were in denial, it's, you know, your life can be very sad if yeah. you if you don't have the courage to recognize, you know, some of your factory settings that you might need to expose to yourself even, right? Like, mm. you know, it's that's, you know, Brene Brown is one of my favorite leaders because, you know, it's really courageous to show vulnerability and, and, you know, step yeah. into a form where you don't necessarily know the outcome. And we do that as first responders all the time, but to do that personally, um, it's terrifying. Like, you know, you talked about a CTV article. I mean, I published a book when I was an operations chief that is very, very personal. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, it was one of the most terrifying things I've ever done in my life because there's credibility at play. You know, yeah. I'm not saying I'm super respected, but I hold a position that's respected. Um, totally. And so to do that uh, was terrifying. But I it had sat at a publisher for over a year and there was a suicide uh, by an RCMP member in Richmond, a young female officer who shot herself because she got in trouble and didn't know her way out. And she thought ending her life would be the way to go. It frustrated me. So I felt like I could get hit by a bus tomorrow and I need to push publish. So I did. And you know what? I had zero negative feedback. Not that I know of. I haven't had any negative feedback from publishing that book. In fact, I mean, CTV, CBC, all the big newspapers across the country, over 60 newspapers ran that story. So I got nothing but compliments and, you know, nice, kind notes. And so that took me by surprise that you know, people are ready for not just Brene Brown, but for everybody to, you know what, just show vulnerability. And yeah, it actually felt good. Yeah. I mean, I think that to some extent, everyone is experiencing just a sense of isolation. I think to some extent, it's why this podcast happened and why it matters to me is that, you know, like I get so many people who come into my office and they're sharing their stories individually in this private um, confidential setting. And that's wonderful. And I'm, I'm so glad to get to do that work. But then it's fascinating to me that it feels like I often live Groundhog Day where client to client, it's a very similar story. And I often think if I could just put all of you in a room together, none of you would feel so alone because you could just know that your story was the exact same as the story I heard right after that. And maybe each of you would feel less lonely in this but we don't share it because again, we're afraid of that piece of like the credibility. Does it change how others in my work would see me? Does it change how they would feel safe or be able to trust me if they knew how much I was struggling with things? Would it affect their ability to walk into the fire with me if they don't think that I'm good? And so I got to look like I'm good, even if I'm really, really not. Right. And so I think to some extent, the emails I get in response to this podcast are like, thank you so much for sharing about this, hearing that one person's story really echoed my own or whatever. And it just really reaffirms that that's so much the challenge that we're still facing is that stigma 
around sharing. And yet when you do, you see that there's like this craving for it, that, that when you publish this book, the response is really, really positive from people. Like people want more of that. They want more authenticity. They want space to be human and to have their humanness be okay. And it's really, really cool that when there's these little pieces that we can put out into the world, that it creates a little bit more space for that. I think that that's a really fantastic outcome of your book. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. Life is a journey and, you know, the subject the subject is yourself, right? Like life is school and the subject is yourself. That's, that's what I tell kids when I speak to them. And, you know, I got asked by someone once, you know, those three kids that passed away, like, what was it exactly that bothered you? And I said, well, it was lots of things. It was, you know, I don't, no one should have to do CPR on a, on a little kid, yeah. but doctors do it every day. You know what I mean? No one should have to die but people die every day. Like there's all these things. And it's interesting because somebody said to me, you know, are you over that call now? And I said, well, I don't know if you ever get over. I said, one of the things that still bother me and, you know, I've accepted in clinical counseling was the last baby was two months old. I don't know if that was a boy or a girl. And I can see the diapers as I'm talking to you right now. They had little, they were either sails or they were rainbows. That was white diapers with curly, black hair and I don't know if it was a boy or a girl so my clinical counselor said you know you should refer to that baby as a boy sometimes and a girl sometimes mm-hmm. or just a baby and you will never know that answer in fact one of the guys that was on that call with me I asked what do you think it was like let's guess yeah and we couldn't and so that was one of the weird things that bothered me about that call I couldn't determine the mm-hmm. sex of the baby we were working on and that bothered me why yeah. should that bother me it really shouldn't. It's not really a big deal in the grand scheme of three kids dying. But that's one of the things that has bothered me that I never knew. And you know what's I mean, interesting? Talk about like how we fill out a story, right? Like we like to know a story and we like to fill in the gaps to a story to make it feel complete and rounded out. And it sounds like that's one of the details your brain really got hung up on in terms of trying to fill out that story. Yeah, and firefighters especially, police officers maybe a bit more, but firefighters never get to know the ending. I mean, totally, rarely, right? There's no closure for us. And so that's one thing that makes, you know, paramedicine, paramedics usually can find out. They can find out. Police they can, can get out. access, but they also often leave before they really know. Right. Yeah, right. totally. So yeah, we, we don't, sure we don't get a lot of closure, right? So Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's hard to know. I did this big job and who knows if that panned out to something good or not so good. Yeah, yeah and I've done, I don't know, CPR probably a few hundred times. And I, you know, I did it before we had AED. So our outcomes, I mean, I, I, I have more fingers than I have successful resuscitations, right? Out of mm-hmm. hundreds, I don't have a lot of um, good outcomes when yeah. I'm at a full arrest call. So you know, to be able to see somebody be revived is a magical, special moment. And yeah, Yeah. I personally haven't had a lot, but I know lots of people have like now with, you know, ADs, you know, that are getting there so quickly, resuscitations are quite, are are a lot more successful than they used to be. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think there's this other piece you brought up that I kind of want to name for a second, because I feel like I hear it a lot in my work. Um, and it's the the piece about the um, the calls that tend to feel like they add up to break us a little bit more tend to be the ones that also overlap quite strongly with our own personal stories. So, um, you know, to have several infant deaths in a span of time where your own infant is in the hospital, like that, that almost becomes this like perfect storm situation right? I've had a lot of people similar to you talk about, you know, I have a history of suicide in my family. And so suicide calls feel like they differently destabilize me compared to other kinds of calls. I could do other kinds of calls all day long, but those ones are the ones that really set me off. I've got several people who talk about um, more geriatric patients are the ones that really bother them um, or calls where there's abuse involved, right? Like everyone's kind of got their their thing that is really, really hard to face. And often it does layer quite closely to their own personal stories and the things that have been hard for them either recently or earlier in their lives. 
yeah, lots of first responders that have reached out to me. A um, lot of past trauma, like a lot yeah. of lot, lot of people that struggle have had abuse, you know. Um, I, and, you know, if they read my book, they talk about my childhood. But one thing, I was never sexually abused. So for me, my trauma is really about um, just dysfunction. I, I think it's a classic low-income dysfunctional family. And when you're a kid, you just think everybody's like that and things you did. And, you know, I was a bad kid and, you know, I look back on my life and my childhood and I was very embarrassed of it, Um, ashamed to be honest, but I was also ashamed of my parents. And for a long time, I blamed my parents for everything, but really I had, it took me a long time to, to hold myself accountable and look back and say, I did all those things, but you know what, I'm not that person. And I've tried very hard to be kind, you know, empathetic and compassionate towards people. And I think, you know, that upbringing created that for me. Like, I don't think I become this person unless I did all those things and went through all those, you know, I became something out of that. So then, you know, and, and a lot of first responders that reach out and talk to me about, you know, shame and for men, especially when you feel shameful um, and then you lose your sense of purpose, that is when suicidal thoughts start to creep in and then lack of sleep. And then in many cases, that's where people get close to the edge is where they start thinking about not so much that they want to, they want to die. They just don't want to live anymore. Right. They get the shame hole is a, a very, very secretive dark place for people, especially men, because more men put their own lives than women, but that's quite common. And the sleep piece build up to that moment when they take their lives is also quite common. And manic behavior and you know recognizing someone who who might be taking their life is is hard but when look, you look back sometimes it's not as hard because i know three firefighters in one department uh who took their lives in within one year and when you look back you could see the signs but mm-hmm. it was easy to discount them when you're working with them right yeah. it's easy to say hey in one case one person was super happy who had been very depressed for a long time they were buying people the dinners, they were washing their car, they were quite happy, which made everybody feel happy. But the reason they were so happy is because they had made their decision and they were saying goodbye to everybody. Mm-hmm. And they did. And so, you know, understanding those little pieces of recognition of someone who's troubled and the signs are, are the classic ones, as you well know, are, um, you know, when someone attaches a positive thing, statement to them not being here anymore that could almost be an emergency, right? Like the Mm -hmm. crisis line is a very, very powerful tool where, you know, with firefighters, I'll give you an example. I got a phone call where a firefighter was very depressed. We all knew this person was very depressed. And one day he said, I think I should remove the guns from my home. So we immediately acted and got all the guns out of his home. And then we went there and sat beside him and called the crisis line. And you know what? Ended up driving him to emerge and spent, you know, several weeks in a in a hospital bed with you know care and psychiatric help and you know what got on some meds and to this day is here and doing quite well and still married and i just talked to him the other day and he's playing playing softball and he's happy but he came very close right very close but he had the courage to phone someone and say i think we need to remove the guns from my home right and so that's that's important because a lot of people don't make that phone call, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. if we're talking about suicide. I can assure you that from my experience, um, I don't believe you can prevent it. I believe you can intervene because when someone wants to take their life, they don't call 911 and they don't yeah. phone a friend. They just yeah. do it. And yeah. so that's that's what we all wear, right? When we have friends who we work with that take their lives, we look back and say, I wish I could have done something or how could they do that? You know such a selfish act well actually it's probably the bravest act they feel they're ever doing right they're helping people by leaving this planet and you can't wear that even though it's hard to even say that but that's what bothers first responders is when you lose a friend because you relate right totally you relate you totally relate everyone has that story too right of like knowing someone who was just so close to them who has made that choice and I think it does. It feels kind of scary to know that we're all vulnerable to that potential for, of, of like hopelessness and helplessness and um, and feeling close to the edge. 
yeah, it's, uh, you know, I spoke at a very large leadership conference and I, all firefighters and chiefs, and I said, there isn't a person in this room who hasn't had a suicidal thought. And I don't necessarily mean suicidal ideology, ideation where you're thinking of taking your life, but you have right. thought about suicide, right? You yeah. see it a lot. And so it creates a, I almost want to say a, cre a creative thinking pattern about suicide. Like I, mm. I've seen some very interesting ways people have taken their lives. It's, and it, mm. you don't forget those, right? Jumping yeah. off a building or a bridge or in Surrey, the Patella uh, mm. bridge is the go-to bridge, but it used to be the Portman, but the Newport Man's a lot more difficult. I have been to jumpers mm. on the Newport Man, but it's rare. Mm. And, you know, people go to bridges um, and I learned a lot about bridges. I worked with the, California Highway Patrol officer by the name of Kevin Briggs, and he taught me how to intervene with someone on a bridge and body language and how you speak and ask permission to talk to them. And, you know, this, this highway patrol officer would deal with 10 people a month. And he's wow. talked to yeah. hundreds of people back onto the right side of the road. And so I wanted to learn that, that skill set he had. But, you know, he would say, I'd be talking to someone for two hours. And we'd having a great conversation and normally get them food. And once they take the food, you're there. And then he said, you know what, Kevin, it was great talking to you. I got to go. And he was gone. Mm -hmm. Right. So you just, when you're a first responder, you, you, you do your best you can do. And then you try and wrap your head around what just happened. Right. And that's where clinical counseling comes in. You get into our head, look through our eyes and help us unravel it. And that's where the connection is. Right. Like I've seen many clinical counselors that I never connected with until yeah. I found one that I have. And my clinical counselor now is a former police officer. And so mm -hmm. I always say, you get it, right? Like you get totally. it, she does yeah. get it and she gets me. So it's all yeah. about that connection, right? Totally. So connecting with someone and being able to talk and the clinical counselor getting inside your head and seeing why you're struggling and helping you unravel that is mm -hmm. that's where the magic is, right? There's no magic when it comes to mental health, but the magic of getting better is that. Behind the Line is sponsored by Beating the Breaking Point. Beating the Breaking Point is a seven-part online training program designed specifically for first responders and frontline workers and tailored to fill the gaps in your training to support resilience and sustainability. Whether you're new to the work and wanting to cultivate tools to prevent burnout, compassion fatigue, and related concerns, or you are deep into your years on the job and have gone a few rounds with burnout and other mental health challenges, this program offers the foundational pieces you need to support personal and professional wellness for the long haul. You are a helper. You love your work and you sacrifice a lot Investing in you and your sustainability is the best gift you can give yourself and those who lean on you. We make this program as risk-free as possible by offering a limited money back guarantee to ensure that it's a fit for you. If you enjoy Behind the Line, you are going to love this program. Google Beating the Breaking Point Lindsay and find everything you need to get started or use the link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Yeah. Well, and I think so much of what our role is, is really helping people build awareness of their own stories, right? And I think that's actually a really interesting part of your story is that you made, you then wrote that story and you published it. Um, but, but that's kind of the job is how do you help someone because so many of us are living in autopilot so much of the time. We just wake up, wash, rinse, repeat, right? And and we don't stop and and look at it or ask questions about it or get curious about how we do and why we do and why we continue to do things that don't serve us particularly well, whether we enjoy things we're doing or if we're just doing them for the sake of doing them. And so our role is really to help people slow down the process for a second and step out of the autopilot and be a bit more intentional about how they're interacting with their own lives. How we tell our own story shapes how we feel about our story and how we continue to engage in our story. And so 
we get to shape that we get to be intentional about it. But in order to do that, we actually have to stop and be intentional about it. We can't just continue to live in default mode where it is very autopilot and we just do and do and do without stopping. And so that you're right that our job is really to just help people kind of see their own story in this in a mildly different way and not necessarily a fantasy way, but a, a more realistic based way. Um, and then get to shape that narrative for themselves going forward instead of feeling like they're victims of whatever has happened up to this point and they just have to continue living out this story that's already been determined, that they get to choose what comes next. Like it's a choose your own ending. You get to pick the direction of it. I think one of the things that you said that also really hit me though was the piece about um, preventing suicide. And I think you're right that like when people are in real, real crisis, it is really hard to prevent suicide like it's hard to to intervene to a degree that really makes it different because if someone is really really set and determined they can be very set and determined and it's very very difficult to do a whole heck of a lot about it i do think that one of the things though that i really wish were talked about more is the what to watch for way sooner so that we weren't getting so far down the road where people are feeling so lost and hopeless for so so long right so like I know you mentioned that when you were struggling after those three uh, infant death calls at the time that your daughter was young, you mentioned this piece about noticing that it showed up as like suddenly I had the flu. And then, right, like there were these various symptoms that became indicators that I'm not doing great, right? And I think one of the really fascinating things that a lot of people don't talk about is that PTSD can manifest itself physiologically in body-related illnesses, right? So we talk often about like, the different mental health signs and signals to look for, but we don't necessarily talk about the physical signs and symptoms to look for, right? So we talk about things like if you're numbing out a lot, or if you're noticing that you're drinking more, or if you're noticing that you are missing things, or if you notice that you're vigilant a lot of the times, that means PTSD. But PTSD can also be showing up in ways that are very physical. And it's actually interesting because we did an interview with a retired RCMP officer, Jen Pound, um, and she talked about that as well, that her symptoms were entirely physical. So when she finally went to her doctor and her doctor couldn't diagnose her with anything, it became this question mark. No one knew how to handle her. And yet really what it was, was PTSD manifesting in her body, right? So we do, we get sick with a lot of things. We suddenly discover that we've got new illnesses or ailments that are weird and wonky and kind of out of left field, but they're like the body's way of showing the tension that it's been holding for so, so long. And it can't continue to hold and contain anymore. Yeah, Jen's story is, I mean, when you're the face of IHIT and you are dealing with families, you have a very, very strong emotional attachment to very, very troubling situations. The costs there, like, I think they learned a lot um, from Jen's story on how to manage people. The department I'm in now, we're extremely progressive when it comes to uh finding new ways to help members, uh, recognizing all of our members uh, are trained in recognition. All of our chiefs are uh, trained, educated on how to react. We have uh, an app-based program for every member to do self-checks to see mm -hmm. how they're doing through UBC, through Heads Up Guys. We have four clinical counselors attached to our wellness program. We have a psychologist. Yeah. Um, we have a program that's very, very progressive. But when I say you can't prevent suicide, maybe you can't prevent all suicides, but even being that open and that progressive and letting every, mem letting every member know if you're struggling, come see us, we will help you, doesn't mm -hmm. mean they will. And in fact, yeah. when I struggled, uh, I didn't miss a day of work. I want, want people covered my shifts. I just asked for, but I had withdrawn from all my friends. I my only concern was nobody finds out about this and yeah. that stigma still exists to this day i've talked to lots of firefighters who have come back from being off for you know six eight twelve months over a year and they feel they wish nobody knew because the culture the fire service culture it's tough it is a tough mm -hmm. culture and it, it even though we all talk about you know how supportive we are we are quietly not as supportive as we say right you know you're on the back with someone and you know i, I had a, a call where three kids were 
were killed in a car crash, very public, you know, all over the news. And, you know, one of the crews that went there was traumatized, very, very traumatized, taken out of service immediately. And I had to call in another crew, but the captain of that crew had just come back from six months off being on a mental health plane. So now, you know, you're extricating bodies and you've just come back, you know, it's a tough culture to be able to protect your members because when they come back, they have to be ready to be able to do that job. And that job, you don't know when you, when you put your gear on the truck, you don't know what's coming your way and you can't. That's what I realized as a chief. That's what I realized, you know, when you're a captain, you cannot protect your crew's mental health because you don't know what's coming your way. So it's tough. It's a tough job. And then when you do take a knee and, and you, you do say I'm struggling. Um, I'm a big believer of if you can get better while at work rather than completely imploding, it's the way to go. So I empower everybody to take a good look at themselves so they can stay working. And even as an employer, it's always in our best interest when our employees are working, not sick. Yeah. So it, it's a very, very progressive way to look at it is how do we help you? You know, what can we do for you? Um, how do we support you? And for the most part, it works pretty well, but it is not perfect. And we're very progressive and open department on mental health. Um, but right now we have one third of our department off. You know, that's how we're struggling like everybody else. It's These are tough times. COVID has really affected um, first responders. And yeah. my book's called The Unbroken, and I consider myself one of the unbroken. But I, I certainly broke there. But now I'm unbroken, but there's a lot of unbroken people holding it together to continue to, especially nurses and doctors, like mm-hmm. just people are just continuing to plow through this. And yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough to watch and tough to do. So that's where you can't even get into a clinical council. That's why we have four attached to I our know. department because our members can't get into them. Yeah, I know. We have the same kind of challenge. I have a contract. Uh, with a first response organization. And I'm, I think one of six connected to that contract. And thankfully they've let me subcontract it to others within my team um, because I can't take any more. Um, and so I'm often re-diverting after they've called all six on the list and none of us can can take them. Um, I have this little angle that I can re-divert to another person on our team who isn't directly named in the contract, but I can divert to. And thank God for that, because um, I think that's the only way that we're continuing to maintain the level of need that we're seeing come through that contract. It's a lot. And it's been a lot for a long time. Yeah, and the missing piece that first responders are not very good at is the family piece, right? So we have such a high divorce rate in policing, fire and paramedicine. And one of the things that we're better at, at least in our department is like, we have a clinical counselor set up for our firefighters kids. So that, you know, once, once you hit 12, you have the access to talk to this clinical counselor. Cause if our, Mm -hmm. our families aren't doing well, we're not doing well. Right. And we come, we come to work and are we're you know divorce is is still quite high for first responders and it's because we don't address that piece so as a department we address that piece we want to help you your spouse your partner and your kids and we want to make sure that you know we're there if you need us and took us a long time to get there but i love that that's a thing you guys are doing i think that that's really rare but lovely yeah i think that if i i wish that there were more things like that that existed and, and more intentional leadership that oriented to some of those needs. Cause I think it would make a huge difference if we saw that on a broader scope and scale across the board, um, rather than that being the exception, if it were the rule, that would be a really cool piece. Yeah. You know what? Clinical counseling for members that aren't, that haven't imploded yet is preventative, pre- preventative yeah. maintenance. Right. And I talk about, it. I try and go once a month and some days I sit down and I really got nothing to talk about. But you know what? It's part of my preventative maintenance. And I, I empower people to do the same and just kind of get in a routine, like just just, you know, work on yourself, figure out, you know, what questions to ask before you go in. Like, you know, I had a person phone me about a week ago and they were in in the, in a store and they were having this said like a battery uh, in their chest. And I said, you ever had anxiety before? And they're like, no. 
I said, okay, I'm going to give you some breathing tips. Mm-hmm. Try this next time it comes on and focus your breathing. And, you know, and so they said that, you know what, that they came back and they tried it and they said, that works. Where did you get that breathing? And I said, well, I, I actually had a breathing coach cause I had to battle anxiety. And, you know, one of the ways to calm my anxiety was to change the rhythm of my heart, which you can do through your breathing. So once you learn things like that, right. And mm-hmm. you, you can use them. And, you know, I have lots of people phone me when they're scared and I'm having a suicidal thought and, you know, I don't want my wife to know. And I said, okay, go up into the shower and turn it on cold. Why? Just go do it and phone me back. And they're like, okay, that was amazing. I go, yeah, you just took control of your body. Your, your thoughts, right? You just told your body I'm in control. So Mm -hmm. I know you feel like you're losing control and those thoughts are creeping in, but you can control them. That's why you need to go to a clinical counselor is to figure out, what why you're having those thoughts and then how to control them and they're like okay i'll go right away i'll book an appointment oh, <laughs> good luck it'll take six months but i'll get yeah. there yeah, yeah. Totally. that's i mean the challenge of the now but to some extent that was one of the other reasons that this podcast felt important was how do we disseminate those tricks because some of them aren't rocket science like they're not like secret tools that clinical counselors are like hiding from the world and only offering when you pay 150 bucks a session. Um, it's something that we want people to know about. It's just really hard to get people to know about them. And so we've done so many episodes that have really just been focused on how do we give some grounding tools? How do we teach some breathing techniques? How do we give some of these tips and tricks that I feel like I'm talking about to people all the time at my day job? How do we make that more accessible so that people can maybe... and especially for those people who aren't necessarily in need of like high crisis intervention, they're, they're doing okay. But to have these tools would let you do okay a lot longer than if you didn't have them. Right. And it helps you notice what you need to notice a little sooner instead of, you know, waiting until you're so far down the drain that now we are in crisis mode or verging on it. How do we catch that a little bit quicker? And so, so many of the episodes that we've done have been talking about those exact kinds of tools because it's so great when we have access to them and don't feel like there's something that we have to phone a friend to get in the mall when I'm having a panic attack or whatever. Yeah, we've all of our firefighters have had training on getting in the now, regardless if they like it or buy in or not, they still get the training. And it's just things like, you know, you get out into nature, those trees are given off microbes. And by standing next to a tree, I know it sounds crazy. Mm-hmm. It, can, it has a healing presence, you know, if you really want to get deep into that, take your shoes off, stand there in your bare feet and look at that forest you're standing in. Those mm-hmm. trees are connected by roots under the ground for thousands of miles. You just became part of that connection. Like, you know, you, it's just mm-hmm. little cool thinking techniques. And you think about breathing. It's been around for thousands of years. It's the basis of meditation. That's why meditation works. Yeah. But driving to a commercial structure fire that's just been upgraded to a third alarm, being able to control your heart rhythm en route to that call is magic and once someone who little anxious about you know going to a shooting or a bad call or a big fire that they're gonna have to manage they can control their heart rhythm and get into a state of readiness before they get there mm-hmm. they only got to do that one time and at work where they're 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 sold they're like yeah. wow well that's been around for thousands of years people and it yeah. works like a charm right yeah Yeah, we actually did an interview back in the fall with a woman named Olivia Mead, and she owns Yoga for First Responders. And it's a program that's taught across various fire uh, fire services across the United States, um, as well as other first response groups. And uh, it's really cool because she talks about how she did... um, she participated in a training alongside several firefighters and they did an enclosed spaces training. And so she was put a, into the suit and the mask and all of the things and, and, and entrapped in this enclosed space. And she talks about how she almost lost her shit. And yet it, the way she held it together was she's like, I'm ground into all my yoga skills. I'm doing all the breathing and all the centering. And it, it was cool. She was talking about how she wouldn't teach someone to do something that she didn't think would work. And so she wanted to try it to make sure that it did. Um, and that it's what let her get through that little chunk of time. And so it was the thing that she then passed along to so many within the, the programs that they're running. And so many people have found that helpful for those moments where they are stuck or they feel like they can't get out. And it 
right? And that can be in closed spaces, but it can also just be a call. Like when we're in a call, there's no, I vote to, to not do this. Like there's no, you, we are doing this. It is happening. It's not optional. And so sometimes I think a lot of people get into that feeling of being trapped in those moments. How do we help you to not feel so out of control in this moment and regain a little control, even if it's just over your own body? Yeah. And at preparation, like if you look, I'll give you an example. I've done a lot of deployments into the wildfires. And, you know, one time I was in a place in the caribou and, you know, we had firefighters spread all over the place. So we worked for pretty much two straight days, but we had to get to sleep. So we created a night shift and the fire was coming down, down the mountain to where we were, but we had to go to sleep. And there's so many little hacks for you to get sleep. Like if you look at what the, you know, the work Navy SEALs do when they're in a very hypervigilant place and an unsafe place, they will, you know, sleep for 10 minutes. They'll put their legs up on a, on a log or in a, on a mattress. And then all the, the majority of the blood's down in their torso area. They will close their eyes and imagine that they're in a safe room in a hammock and it's dark or in a boat in the middle of a lake Like they create this safe place in their mind for yeah. 10 minutes and they, yeah. they pretty much get 10 minutes of restfulness sleep and then they can function a little longer and, and you know do their tasks and I think those little hacks to learn um, are, are really important especially for first responders to get I work with a lot of uh, well I don't as much as a chief but I used to work with a lot of young incident commanders so I would teach emergency scene management and a lot of them battled anxiety and confidence. Mm, that yeah. job is all about confidence. So what I would get them to do is when you arrive at a house fire, I'll just use a house fire mm. or, or a warehouse, you have to paint a picture for all the trucks that are coming in. So mm. you are on display as soon as you arrive, you know, I have a four story wood frame residential commercial structure fire, you know, flames and smoke showing on the alpha side. I got people trapped on the Bravo side. We need to, you just practice those things and if you can do the first part right of anything, just get started. You'll build up confidence in that first minute and the rest will just unfold. But you need to get started because that thing is not stopping and you've got to do it. So do the first part right and the rest will just unfold. And yeah. I think that's like that's life right there. Like, you know, no matter what you're going through, um, you just get started and you know what? It will unfold on its own and you can try and steer it. Right. Totally. I love that as a summary point. I'm curious if there's any other pieces, Steve, that you would, you know, share for those who are new to the work, those who are kind of getting their feet wet in it and and have the opportunity to do something a bit more preventative. Are there other pieces that you would want to share kind of words of wisdom? Yeah, I think if you're a first responder, I think the greatest thing you could learn early um, is detachment. So try not to bring your calls home to your family. And one of the ways to do that, like Jocko Wilnick is a, actually a Navy SEAL and he's an expert on detachment. So mm -hmm. like not wearing your uniform home um, in our fire hall, you know, they bug me and say, uh, you're, you're, they call me coach lasso, but I have, I've got your back over there's, I've got your back over doorways. You know, one of the other chiefs suggested we do this. And I was like, absolutely. And, you know, detaching from the, the hall when you leave or your police car or your ambulance, being able to detach, find a way to do that. And sometimes it's walking into the forest like we talked about and looking for three shades of green, like actually yeah. consciously making yourself detach, right? Yeah. Cold water is a perfect example. You have no choice but to detach because you're like shocking your system, like mm -hmm. find ways that work for you to detach and leave that at work. And I think if that's one thing a new first responder could learn, um, it will, it will allow them to retire healthy and happy. And, you know, it's a very, very powerful thing to learn. And I, I didn't learn it. So I kind of learned it the hard way where I had to learn it because it was affecting, affecting my family, it was affecting my ability to sleep. And so, yeah, detaching is a very, very important, but everybody's got different factory settings. So you got to figure out how you can detach. So, yeah, good one. Well, and detaching is like a learned skill, right? Like most things we don't, you know, most of us don't have that in our factory settings to be able to just cut something off there and carry on. And so the really hard thing that we're fighting is our own humanness, which is one of the things I talk about a lot is 
that like no one's actually wired at their factory settings to do this job. No one is um, built for this without it being something where I often say that no one comes out unscathed. Um, like we're wired in a way where these kinds of jobs will do some amount of damage because that's the nature of the job and the nature of how we're wired. Um, learning ways to kind of close the book on today here and then open the book on today when I go home. And and that detaching piece, you're right, is really important. We often talk about this idea of how do we um, kind of make that transition. So how do we kind of end the day at my job and close that and make it feel like I can look at that and tell the story of what I did today in a way that I can feel okay about, right? There were really hard things. No one should have had to have seen what I saw today. And yet I did that. I can feel proud of the work I did. I can know that I responded in my best ability, et cetera. Can I tell that story in a way that lets it feel closed for today? And then can I have like a transition ritual that helps me move from A to B, where I then open up the story of when I walk into my house, the kind of parent I want to be, the kind of spouse I want to be, the kind of, you know, household contributor I want to be. And how do I create that transition period? So whether it is going out in nature or if it's like listening to my favorite music in the car on the ride home, we often talk with people about creating like a transition activity between A and B. So like for a lot of people going to the gym in between blaring my music and kind of getting the day out of my system can be really key to that. And so just like little adjustments that help us make that shift so that I can close the book on one and then open the book to the kind of person I want to be in my home life on the other side of it without feeling like it's all trailing together in this like unending loop. I think the toughest thing for me to learn and maybe a good thing to end on is I always tell people to be kind because it feels good, but be kind to yourself because I beat myself up and I really didn't like myself for so long. I think if you can find a way to be kind to yourself, it's okay to struggle. It's fine. Mm -hmm. It's okay to have emotions. It, though, all those things are okay, but you really got to cut yourself some slack when you're feeling crappy and it's hard to do. And I had to learn it. It was very hard for me to learn. But that is one thing I think is really important is being able to be kind to yourself. Yeah, totally true. All right, Steve, it was delightful getting to chat with you. And I'm really excited to have the opportunity to connect. I am excited to be able to post uh, some links in our show notes to your book and your podcast and some of that jazz. So if those who are listening want to go check it out, they can find out all about you. So I will make sure that that's all available in the show notes for those listening. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on and thanks for helping first responders. You bet, my pleasure. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. I want to say one more big thank you to my guest for today. It is so wonderful to get to have this opportunity to talk to some incredible and amazing people who have been out there doing the work, seeing the stuff, and figuring out how to hold it differently. I'm so grateful for the willingness of these incredible people to jump on with me, share their stories, and share with you the various ways that they're learning and finding to move through this kind of work with some amount of sanity intact. I think we can all take something really special from that. As we wrap up today, I want to encourage you to please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. You know I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. I also love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. If you have any feedback for my amazing guests today, please let me know and I'm happy to pass it along. I continue to be so amazed and inspired by this community that we are building and creating together. I'm so grateful for your support and that many of you are so incredibly keen to share about Behind the Line to others on the front lines. Thank you so much for sharing with those you know. I want to let you know that we do have ways to support sharing. So if you reach out to me, I can send you posters and cards and all kinds of other ways that you can share with your workplace and your colleagues about Behind the Line and our other resources. Also know that you can share any of our social media posts or forward any of our emails that we send you with reminders about the show. We just want more people to be supported. 
Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. Many of our summer series uh, episodes will be videotaped, and we will include those recordings on YouTube. So check those out if you want to join us in real life. Click subscribe to get alerts about our latest episodes or subscribe to our email list to hear from me about all the exciting things we have going on and coming up. You'll find all the details you need in the show notes and you can access our email list by clicking to get our free beating the breaking point indicators checklist and triage guide, which helps you facilitate self-assessing burnout and related concerns. We make all of our different resources available to you guys because the work you do really, really matters to our communities, but way more than that, you matter. Your life matters and the people who matter to you matter. And we want to make sure that you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, but as well in your very real and amazing life outside of the work. So use it and share it. And until next time, stay safe.